Bayer. Before hooking into the Norwegian expeditions, I need to clear up a potential misunderstanding caused by my misspeaking in episode 83, wherein I mentioned the Adelie penguin's venomous attack against Fletcher as he carried two dead skewers through their rookery. That was venomous in the sense of a prolonged and targeted attack carried out against a perceived enemy, not in the sense that penguins produce a toxin they are able to use against attackers or prey. Penguins are able to do enough harm with their beaks and their wings, which feature a sharp leading edge and flap back and forth as class 3 levers attached to some powerful and well-anchored muscles, without needing to also envenomate the target of their attack. Ornithologists who work with penguins speak of a penguin-specific medical condition, flipperthwack, wherein uncovered shins or forearms can receive lacerations from rapidly oscillating wings of an insecurely held bird. I once carried a yellow-eyed penguin, mauled in what I suspect was an attack by a barracuda, to the point it couldn't climb the hill to the nesting sites off Allen's Beach on the Otago Peninsula, New Zealand, to my car, and drove it to a penguin specialist facility able to provide first aid for, and to house and feed the bird through its convalescence. Untrained in managing wild birds, I improvised as best I could with a towel, blanket, and cardboard box, hoping to prevent further injury to the animal and any injury to me. Even in its exhausted and badly bleeding state, the animal did its best to defend itself against this strange giant with the opposable thumbs, and I had the box clever to keep all my fingers as the angry bird worked itself free from the blanket, requiring I regularly stop and rebundle this ball of blood and feathers while it did its best to damage me. In fear of my eyesight, should it work itself clear of its covers at the point closest to my face. I carried the box at arm's length, finding out exactly how heavy these birds are, which is very. Allen's Beach is a long beach, and after trekking in after a long surf, trekking back to the injured bird with the improvised rescue kit, and then zombie walking back to the car with an angry, smelly, bleeding bird, I was on the cusp of not caring and chucking the ingrate into the nearest macrocarpa, though my arms feeling about as strong as rubber bands at that point, likely couldn't have made a good job of lobbing a tennis ball at that point, let alone five kilograms of pecking obstreperousness. If penguins were venomous, that bird would have been left to bleed out. I'm not anti-venomous animals, but I know I'm not trained to handle them safely, my one barely successful attempt at snake handling being more a matter of fear-inspired speed than it was about skill and my encounters with Australian spiders invariably result in the demise of the arachnid, generally resulting in a molecule-thin smear of the former components that defies any effort at taxonomy, to the point I never know whether or not they were a venomous species. So the short version is, penguins aren't venomous, to my knowledge. Scientists have to keep certainty out of their thinking and their writing, and podcasting, in case contrary evidence comes to light. I don't want to get sued by someone who loses a loved one to a penguin envenomation because my output saw them approach a rookery without a snakebite kit. Long and silly digression over. In 1911, Norwegian business interests in the Southern Ocean gave British precedents in Enderbyland and Wilkesland tacit recognition by applying for whaling licences to work the adjacent waters. A further Norwegian application for a whaling licence in 1919 helped fuel Leo Amery's push that Britain should seek to control the entire continent 
by offering further evidence that Norway, at least, perceived Britain as already administering large swathes of the southern space it did little to actually investigate, let alone claim or manage. A 1922 application for exclusive whaling licences in the Ross Dependency cemented the British government's idea that they held the reins and, combined with the Paris Peace Conference nulling the German association with the coast visited by Drygalski, saw little new interest in Antarctica arise in Britain and its dominions throughout most of the 1920s. This all changed in the southern race to get south and make with the claiming already described in episode 82. As noted in that episode, the Norwegian government didn't send an expedition south, not officially anyway. Unlicensed whaling in the Southern Ocean was perceived as pushing the industry beyond sustainable yields, but I read this as scapegoating. While unlicensed whalers, not bound by caveats that they use the meat and skeletons of their catch, likely killed more whales per unit of voyage than their licensed counterparts, the overall slaughter occurred at such a frenetic pace and increasing efficiency that any competent assessment of the accumulating data showed the industry ending with the effective extinction of the animals at its base. In 1929, Norwegian legislators mandated which species its nation's fleets could hunt, and that all calves and suckling mothers should be exempted from the hunt, and in 1930, introduced size limits. In 1931, 25 other nations signed on to a regulatory model for the industry at an international convention but the proposed measures didn't come into play until the regulations were ratified in 1936, and inspectors weren't placed aboard any whaling ships until 1937. That was the first year Japan sent whaling vessels into the Southern Ocean, Nobushiraze lamenting that his nation hadn't capitalised on his expedition to the Eastern Ross Sea, and the claims that his Dash Patrol and King Edward VII land shore parties made a quarter century earlier. 1937 was also the year the whales took their biggest ever hit, with 33 whaling expeditions killing 46,000 whales. British attempts to charge tariffs on whale products deriving north of 60 degrees south, combined with the British rhetoric and actions reflecting Leo Amory's territorial ambitions, encouraged Norwegian efforts to claim territory in the south. While the Norwegian government didn't send an exploratory expedition, Lars Christensen did, Nine of them, if you want to be particular, and I do, to fulfil a stated ambition to raise the Norwegian flag over a quarter of the Antarctic coast. And five of those nine expeditions carried aircraft for reconnaissance flights, as was the style at the time. Lars Christensen could afford to. Lars joined his father, Christen Christensen, in the shipping business, and it was for him that the endurance made famous by Shackleton's experiences in the Weddell Sea, was originally built as the Polaris, intended for Arctic tourism and polar bear hunts. Lars Christensen also spent time in politics and diplomacy, becoming consul to Denmark in his twenties. At around the same time, he married Ingrid Dahl, daughter of another shipping magnate, Thor Dahl. The deaths of his father and his father-in-law in the early 1920s and the resulting inheritances saw Lars become one of Norway's preeminent shipping magnates and he worked his fleets efficiently and effectively, giving his captains wide latitude to explore unknown areas of Antarctica in much the same way the Enderby brothers did their sealing captains a century before him. 
In giving his captain such a remit, he risked lower returns per unit investment if nothing profitable came to light during a given exploratory gambit, but girded his company's long-term interests by opening up previously unknown areas to his whale chasers and by kicking off an internationally recognisable connection between Norway and the parts of Antarctica his vessels visited, potentially alleviating pressure from Britain to pay levies and licence fees to operate in the waters where the whales hung out. But it wasn't all about profits and long-term returns for Lars. He was genuinely interested in the geography and the biology of Antarctica, and belonged to several scientific and geographic societies. Philanthropy is a word loaded with ulterior motives and consciences strained by the exploitation of workers and common resources, in my mind. But I can't state that Lars Christensen didn't put his money where his mouth was, in terms of supporting research. In the 1926-27 Austral summer, Lars Christensen sent the whaling vessel Odd One, last mentioned in episode 61 as one of the vessels the British Imperial Antarctic Expedition piggybacked their way south and back on, to Peter the First Island first sighted by Bellingshausen and later spotted by Charcot, but as yet to feel a human footfall. Primarily seeking new whaling grounds to keep Christensen's fleet profitably employed, the Odd One also carried sounding equipment and trawl gear with which to carry out oceanographic sampling and preservatives and lab consumables sufficient to preserve and curate any collected material to take home and lodge in museums. Christensen wasn't a stay-at-home magnate leading exploratory voyages aboard his ships on several occasions, notably landing on and claiming Bovatoya on the 1st of December 1927. Previously claimed by Britain, but never occupied or otherwise managed by it, the British Foreign Office ceded Bovatoya Island without challenge, in spite of Leo Amory's long-held but dying-by-a-thousand-cuts ambitions for Antarctica and its resources. An intention to sail the odd one further south to explore the Enderby Land coast, not visited since the previous century, came to naught when the ship struck a rock, receiving sufficient damage that Christensen was forced to head north for repairs. In the 1927-28 Austral summer, Christensen's ship, the Norvegia, sailed to Peter I Island for similar survey and claiming work. While his projects constituted privately funded endeavours, and all claims were made without official government or royal mandate. The Norwegian flag was flying uncontested on two land masses in the far south. Recall that Roald Amundsen claimed the Polar Plateau as King Harkon VII land, but that Britain kicked up about this on account of Shackleton claiming the same area, albeit from a less iconic position than the South Geographic Pole, three years earlier as King Edward VII land. In the 1929-30 season, Lars Christensen intended a far broader exploratory voyage, featuring claiming ceremonies on the Antarctic continent and using aircraft to survey a greater swath of coasts and hinterland than ship and shore-based endeavours could achieve on their own. He cannily chose Hjalmar Risa Larsson to lead the project. Risa Larsson, son of a mariner, spent his early years at sea and joined the Norwegian Naval Academy at the age of 19. He became a lieutenant in the fledgling Royal Norwegian Navy Air Service six years later as part of the first intake of pilot candidates, taking postings to the Horten Aircraft Factory, a Swedish aero engine factory, and to a test pilot training program in Britain, 
before heading to Germany to help select airframes for the Norwegian Navy. His choice, the Hansa Brandenburg W-33, designed by Ernst Heinkel, filled Norway's seaborne aviation needs for the next 15 years. Risa Larsson's experiences saw him join the Aviation Council of the Norwegian Ministry of Defence, where he learnt all he could about both the military and civil aviation infrastructures in development as his nation embraced the new technologies of flight and all the potential it offered a widely distributed population. In the early 1920s, he took an airship piloting course in Britain in anticipation of regular services between the UK and Scandinavia. And he and fellow naval aviator Finn Lutzauer Holm flew Hansa Brandenburg float planes on an epic 47-hour flight around the Norwegian coast, the return leg of the flight constituting the first air ambulance mission in the country, bringing a typhus case from Finnmark to Horten for medical attention. Risa Larsson piloted the Dornier Wahl N25 during the Amundsen-led, Ellsworth-funded attempt to cross the Arctic via the North Pole in 1925, and he was back in the Arctic the following year when he served as navigator aboard the airship Norge. Risa Larsson and Lutzer Holm headed to Spitsbergen to fly in search of the crew of the overdue Italia, becoming the first aviators to locate the Red Tent, although they were unable to land their float plane to effect a rescue. They then flew in search of the French Latham aircraft on which Amundsen went missing while in transit to assist in the search for the crew of the Italia. Unlike Mawson, who had to plan his voyage carefully to ensure government and private contributions didn't leave him holding a large debt baby, as the AAE did. Christensen was sending ships south anyway, so he didn't require government funding or public subscriptions to get the expedition fundamentals together. The Norwegian Navy did help out with an aircraft, a Hansa Brandenburg reconnaissance aircraft on floats, powered by a 185 horsepower BMW engine. The machine was nearing the end of its service life, but remained a sound design, but that was the extent of any official Norwegian government interests in or support for the project. The expedition also carried a Lockheed Vega, already proven a stalwart mount at high latitudes by Sir Hubert Wilkins, that could be fitted with skis, wheels or floats. The Vega came into Christensen's hands by means I can't divine. I think it must have been a rental, because all the flying ended up falling the way of the naval airframe. Because the expedition constituted a private venture, the Norwegian government could and did deny it was seeking to make territorial gains in Antarctica, but Lars Christensen was certainly looking at the situation differently. Christensen was making good money off his whaling fleet, but profits could be improved by decreasing overheads, one of which comprised the licence fees Britain charged his operations. Christensen sent aircraft and pilots south to fly the Norwegian flag in the blank spaces on the maps and charts in the hope that he might establish new whaling stations, further south than those still in use, though offering diminishing returns, in the sub-Antarctic islands, and to slip the yoke of British Dominion and licensing fees in the Falkland Islands and Ross Dependencies. Risa Larsson sailed from Norway aboard the Torshammer in August 1929, the Lockheed Vega and the Hansa Brandenburg airframes on the factory vessel with him. 
Finn Lutzau Holm, transferred to the Torshammer near Bovatoya after sailing from Cape Town aboard the Toroi, heading south with its own brace of chaser boats. He and Risa Larson made several flights in aid of the whaling operations, finding promising leads among pack ice and spotting concentrations of rorquals for the chaser boats to chase, which sounds playful until you remember that the chase generally ended with an explosive tipped harpoon. Both pilots and aircraft transferred to the Norvegia, which replenished the shipwreck hut at Bovatoya after spending the Austral winter laid up in South Georgia. A wooden-hulled, ketch-rigged sealer, Norvegia was small for the work set before it. The airframes draped their wings and tails over its sides and stern, and the 18 people on board must have slept in very close quarters, to judge from the pictures I've seen of that vessel. As with the Discovery, bunkering coal for the task at hand proved problematic, and the Norvegia's plimsoll line sat well below the water as it departed south, forcing a very circumspect approach to poor weather, the Norwegians invariably heading into the pack where the damping effect of the flows around them lowered the risk of the ship's compromised writing moment, leading to foundering and large swells. The Hunter Brandenburg was employed in survey flights over Beauvetoya for several days, but all aerial photography relied on oblique cameras, the cloud base remaining too low for the more accurate vertical camera approach to apply. The expeditioners built and stocked another shipwreck refuge on Lars Island before setting course for Enderby Land on the 14th of November, making almost continuous use of the BAM echo sounder along their track. Heeding the oceanographic hypotheses of von Neumeyer, the Norvegia followed and entered the pack with the idea of working with the ice rather than against it, using the seaward set to gradually work their way south through what leads the ice offered, rather than trying to butt their way through. While this was also the idea behind the Endurance's entry to the Weddell Sea, the evidence supporting the Norwegian approach, arising as it did from several oceanographic studies of the pack ice edge, gave them more confidence they were onto a winner than the ITAE could ever have, and demonstrably should not have had, given how things turned out for the Endurance. Even with this plan in mind, several hundred miles of pack ice lay between the ship and its goal, the Enderby Land coast remaining unsighted since John Biscoe saw and named it for his bosses in 1831. Observations made on this voyage measured the pack ice when unimpeded by coasts or grounded icebergs, moving at a maximum speed of 20 wind-driven nautical miles a day, and measured icebergs as capable of current-driven speeds of 10 nautical miles a day, independent of what the wind was up to. Risa Larson noting this phenomenon as particularly worrying for any ship constrained in its movements by the pack, worry compounded by fog, squalls or blizzards reducing visibility. The Norvegia followed the package south and north again before delving into the leads on the 30th of November. Heavy ice stopped progress south on the 1st of December, and a southerly wind moved the pack and ship northward, but gave hope that the waters to the south might be opening up. Risa Larsen, gazing into the blown snow of a squall from the crow's nest, spied a blue whale on its way south at speed, offering encouragement that clear water did lie in that direction assuming that particular whale knew what it was doing. We always take our cues from animals as though they're competent, and that usually pays off well, 
but I really hope I don't follow one of those seals heading inland to die in the dry valleys, expecting it to lead me to a coastline. Or a giraffe dullard that dies of thirst when I expect it to lead me to water on the African savannah. The Norwegians overcame the shortcomings of the coal bunkers to some extent by supplementing their flammables with seal blubber. While this made an effective coal substitute, Risa Larsen recorded feeling bad about using the local wildlife in this manner, with an exception being leopard seals, which he correctly considered a terror to the penguins and crab eaters, a perspective he employed to kill these less common seals with good conscience when the opportunity arose. The pack loosened in the days that followed, and on the 5th, the expedition encountered a 15-mile berg with a large expanse of open sea lying to leeward, and on the 7th, a reconnaissance flight spotted what might be nun attacks piercing the icy surface, and while a strong headwind prevented further investigation, the sense that the expedition neared the coast grew among the Norvegia's crew. Risa Larsen, in recounting this flight, noted how hard it is to find a ship among the ice from the air. The ice never lies still for long, so a pilot can't rely on patterns and landmarks, as is the case in contact navigation. And unlike open waters, icebergs add three-dimensionality and shadows that prevent a ship standing out as a tall thing on a flat surface. Waves aren't such a factor, as aviators can't fly once the swell gets up, and no one's going to land safely if the waves are obscuring the ship's superstructure and mastheads. Larson's comments mirror those Frank Hurley added to his narration for Siege of the South, and the accompanying footage constitutes compelling evidence for the claim. The Norvegia put out ice anchors, and the engineer let the fires burn out, cleaning the firebox and boiler, while the expedition awaited better conditions anticipated with the advance of summer. On the 22nd of December, Risa Larsen and Lutzal Holm flew off with the Hansa Brandenburg heavily loaded with survival equipment, instructing the ship to stay near two prominent icebergs to make a return flight easier to navigate, but also giving the captain orders through to late March in case they didn't return in a few days. The pair flew 90 nautical miles along the coast, Risa Larsen sketching the pack margin and noting the grounded icebergs. Flying inland at what Risa Larsen suspected was Cape Anne, the heavily laden airframe couldn't gain enough altitude to reach the glacial crest. After landing the Hansa Brandenburg in open water and taxiing it to shore, Holm opened the throttle and forced the airframe's floats onto the low, fast ice. The floats served adequately as skis, and they sledded across the sea ice for some distance, but as the ice became increasingly rough, Holm eased off and brought the aircraft to a halt to prevent damaging their umbilical cord back to the ship. Sighting rocky prominences, estimated as lying 5 kilometres distant, the pilots took to their skis, aiming to plant the Norwegian flag on continental Antarctica. The clear Antarctic air played visual tricks on them though, and after two hours of skiing, much of it in company with two Adelie penguins keeping pace tobogganing along on their bellies, the rocks appeared no closer. They raised the Norwegian flag given to Risa Larsen by King Harkon VII and Queen Maud on the snow, cached a deed of claim in a sealed box, replaced the good silk flag with a cheaper and less royally associated copy, and headed back to their aircraft. 
During the trek, they kept the weather eye on clouds forming at the lip of the inland ice, a sign that winds were changing, moist warm air from the sea, mixing it with cold dry air from inland. What started as a wispy wraith of cloud when they commenced their skiing was a dense bank of darkness by the time they started warming up the Hansa Brandenburg's engine. They took off just in advance of a dense fog that didn't roll in on the coast so much as form in place along it, and it was some careful dead reckoning with many drift sightings and logical failsafes that saw them locate their distinctive icebergs and, from them, the Norvegia. The aircraft went aboard as the fog closed in, delaying a transit north to bunker coal from the Torshammer. The Norvegia made its way north over the course of a week and made contact with the Torshammer on the 30th of December, but conditions prevented bunkering operations until the 4th of January. Turning south again, they found the edge of the pack substantially shifted since their first encounter, an encouraging sign that the summer thaw would see their work gradually become easier. On the 10th of January, the radiogram from Lars Christensen came in advising that the Norwegian government agreed to a British recommendation that they make no claims within Enderby land, which they already did on the 22nd of December at Cape Anne. It's probably a good thing Mawson and the Banzari never got ashore there, as finding the flag and the deed might have seen Mawson flapping his telegraphy key with diplomatic incident consequences. I already recounted the Norvegia crossing paths with the Discovery on the 14th of January in episode 82, but it's interesting to read about it from the Norwegian perspective, particularly that Risa Larsen refers to John King Davis as the Nestor of Antarctic skippers. This is, I think, mostly a compliment. Nestor first turns up in Greek mythology as one of the Argonauts, and is later referred to as the wise king of Pylos a crown that fell his way after Heracles killed all his siblings. Many characters seek Nestor's counsel in the Iliad, and while his advice is received as wise and treated with respect because of Nestor's age and experience, the poem treats him as a somewhat comic figure, his delivery always being couched in boastful contrasts of the situation his interlocutor asks about and whatever analogue he draws from the past. That's why I'm cautious about calling Risa Larson's comparison a compliment outright. It's a little too close on the heels of the ridicule heaped on Davis by Mawson and Mackenzie for me to trust it at face value. Risa Larson noted that the great ice barrier that blocked John Biscoe's view to the south disappeared in the intervening 90 years, allowing sightings of the Enderby Land Mountains and this resonates with some recent articles passed my way by various correspondents. It seems my experience in Admiralty Bay in late 2017, wherein I saw nine leopard seals, is not an isolated one, and that loose congregations of the animals are now regularly sighted around King George and Livingston Islands, where they feed upon the juvenile fur seals. Normally considered solitary, these aggregations are new to scientific record, but I wonder if they are new to the ecology of the region. Keep in mind that people have only visited King George and Livingston Islands for the past two centuries, and that details of early visits were kept deliberately sketchy by most of the people who made them, so as to protect their valuable knowledge of where to go to catch maximum fur seals. Visiting Cave Cove, 
Picardy Cove and the ruins of Stromness Whaling Station in late 2018. I found myself wondering how Shackleton and the Cairdenauts got ashore without having to box clever due to the large numbers of fur seals on the beaches, remembering, with a melancholy bump, that it's only recently these animals returned to these sites after their near extinction in the 19th century. It could be that leopard seals once gathered in the numbers we're now observing to partake of fur seal pups, but that humanity never recorded it, because by the time people looking to study and make notes about Antarctic biology turned up, the fur seal pups no longer existed as a food source, the leopard seals switching to a more penguin-intensive diet in their absence. Could be that now the fur seals are back, the form of behaviour reinstates itself, surprising the Johnny-come-lately humans who've never seen it before. I need to read more about this, but the absence of the baseline data mirrors what I think we're seeing in Mawson and Risa Larison's voyages, not finding the ice tongues and barriers cited by expeditions preceding their own by a century. Because we don't have a complete and detailed GIS layer of what ice shelves lay where around Antarctica prior to the advent of satellite-based mapping services, we don't know how much of the Antarctic shelf ice load has already been lost. Tidal records from around the world indicate that the volume of ice lost can't approach a large fraction of the whole quantity, but I do wonder if these northernmost glacial ice tongues and ice barriers disappeared as a result of the Industrial Revolution, the vanguard of the train we've inadvertently set rolling down the tracks in a trolley problem with millions of people on the tracks and our present reliance on fossil fuels sitting on the bridge over the line. It's speculation, but it's not wild speculation to think that the Antarctic that the Erebus and Terra visited was already responding to the changes humanity wrought on the atmosphere in just a handful of generations. And before any climate change denier gets in touch to, well, actually, at me about shelf ice and glacial tongues not contributing to sea level change or other concerns relating to our alterations to the atmosphere because those ice tongues were already part of the sea, the problem posed by the breakup of ice shelves is that the glaciers behind them can flow more quickly once the stopper is out of their jar. Ice that wasn't part of the sea becomes part of the sea far faster than before. Unwell, actually. Hunter Brandenburg flights either side of the crossing of paths between the Norvegia and the Discovery littered the coast with Norwegian names, including, but not limited to, the Saur Romdan Mountains, the Princess Martakist and Cap Norvegia at the entrance to the Weddell Sea, marking the expedition's westernmost reach on the 18th of February. Finn Lortzalholm flew over a region he named Dronning Mordland, though this later became Kronsprins Olavland, and later again the Kronsprins Olavkist, the name Dronning Mordland remaining unused until reinstated as an overarching moniker for what became Norway's official Antarctic territorial claim, of which see more anon. The following day, Riesel Larsen and Lutzar Holm overflew an area near Cap Norvegia they named Selbukta, sighting a low ice edge below a mountain range covered by a smooth dome of ice. Riesel Larsen commented at the time that this would make an ideal site for a shore station the low ice edge to the local barrier, offering better access than most coastal sites observed in that region to date. Investigation by the Norvegia backed this up, 
finding the associated bay clear of icebergs and kept largely clear of sea ice by tidal currents. This close examination allowed Risa Larison to qualify his statement about Selbukta as a potential shore site, observing that while a winter party might land there readily enough in the summer conditions the Norvegia experienced that season, he couldn't guarantee that sea ice in the bay would break out each season, a concern born of experience in northern Greenland, when a winter party struggled to depart their base when the sea ice stayed in place one summer. At some point, the Norvegia received damage to its bow, but I can't find any reference to how or how badly this affected the ship's performance, but that it warrants mention in Risa Larsen's account indicates it was more than a matter of scraped paint. A flight to observe Coatsland on the 20th of February was followed by days spent sheltering in Selbukta during a hurricane with wind speeds over 100 knots. On the 23rd of February, bloody late in the season to operate anywhere in the Weddell Sea, tight pack hugged the coast in the wake of the blow, but with grease ice and then pancake ice forming in the leads, and swell from the north indicating an open path away from Antarctica, the Norvegia turned from the continent, burning through the last of its coal to make its rendezvous with the Torshammer, achieved on the 2nd of March. The expedition sailed north with sketches of 370 nautical miles of the Antarctic coast between 55 and 43 degrees east. Photographic records of many geological features for the Geophysical Institute in Bergen. Vertical plankton samples for the Biological Institute at the University of Oslo. News of new whaling grounds for Lars Christensen ships to exploit. And Norwegian flags flying over, or at least lying on, the continent. Bunkered by the Torshammer, the Norvegia continued north, reaching Cape Town on the 27th of March, the ship wintering there while the samples, data and expedition members continued homeward by steamer. On reaching Norway, Finn Lutzalholm ignored the diplomatic efforts of his government to placate their British counterparts, stating clearly for anyone who cared to listen that Enderby land belonged to Norway. A film edited together from the footage Risa Larsen captured while airborne in Antarctica showed in Oslo cinemas to reinforce a public perception of Antarctica as part of Norway's territorial remit. The following season, Lars Christensen's whaling fleet continued making discoveries and naming landmarks. Captain Halverson aboard the new Sevilla mapped the Princess Astrid Kist, and Otto Borschgrevink aboard the Antarctic sighted land behind Lutzalholm's Dronning Maudland, leading to the first name change to Kronsprins Olivkist, while Nils Larsen carried Risa Larsen aboard the Norvegia once more. Risa Larsen made flights over a coast that received the name Princess Reinheldland, later changed to Princess Reinhild Kist. One of Lars Christensen's gunners told his employer that he sighted that their Princess Reinhildland before that there fine naval officer of yours. But the recognition, as is often the case, went to the fine naval officer who made and published the chart. As was mentioned in episode 84, Norwegian whaling ships brought the first women to Antarctic waters, sufficiently far south as to observe the continent, and I make that distinction because women lived at South Georgia after the whaling stations established and thrived. 
Who the very first woman to sight Antarctica was, and what post she held on a whaling vessel, is likely written down, and may even be well known and celebrated in Norway, because sharp operators, such as Carl Anton Larsen and Lars Christensen, kept good records. But her name isn't known to me, and I don't have enough Norwegian cachet, or friends on the ground in Bergen, or the Ostervold Islands anymore, to start asking around. Ingrid Christensen sailed aboard the Torshaven tanker vessel in 1931 in company with Mathilde Vega, and judging by the photographs available to me, they weren't there to grease the engines or chip rust. Fur-trimmed coats and fine leather boots and such make it likely they accompanied Mr Christensen as guests, but I don't resent anyone their view of Antarctica, even if I do think Lemmy was onto something with Eat the Rich. I should mention that the massive successes of Southern Ocean whaling in the 1928-29 and 1929-30 Austral summers led to a glut on the oil market, and some operators held back from sending ships south until the barrel price rebounded. It was during this period the whaling station at Deception Island closed, the company and its occupants walking away from substantial capital investments and infrastructure, in some cases walking away from meals half-eaten and leaving personal effects in the accommodations block. Accounts of visits to the Whalers Bay Station in the years immediately after its closure carry echoes of those given by the discoverers of the Mary Celeste, adrift in the mid-Atlantic, all sound but for the absence of any people. In 1933, Lars Christensen departed Cape Town aboard the tanker Torshaven for an intended circumnavigation of Antarctica. The aircraft carried on this voyage, an Avro avian biplane mounted on floats, held more in common with Mawson's de Havilland Moth than it did the Lockheed Vega or the Hansen Brandenburg of the Norvegia's travels, both in appearance and performance. A short-range spotter aircraft rather than a long-distance transit and surveying steed. Pilot Lieutenant Gunnarstad wasn't allowed to fly this airframe beyond the visual range of the ship, because the avian, at 85 horsepower, didn't have the herbs to carry a radio and so couldn't receive updates on weather or the ship's movements. The avian also didn't have the legs to perform much of a search pattern if it couldn't find the ship immediately on returning to its departure point. Ingrid Christensen sailed aboard the Torshaven once more and became the first woman on record to have sailed below the Antarctic Circle during that voyage. The Ornan 3, a catcher boat modified to take the avian closer to shore than the Torshaven could manage, sailed in company with the larger ship. The avian made its first reconnaissance flight on the 10th of January 1934. On the 17th, operating the aircraft from the Ornan 3, Gunnarstad flew the first mate of the Torshaven, Mills Larsen, on flight to the west and east along the ice barrier the ships had met. Lars Christensen named the barrier King Leopold and Queen Astrid Coast after the newly crowned Belgian monarchs. Queen Astrid, formerly Princess Astrid of Sweden, died in a car accident a year later, and King Leopold III was labelled a traitor to Belgium for his actions under German occupation during the Second World War, so it's not the happiest name on the Antarctic coast though it competes for melancholia points with the large number of geographic features named after people who died near them. 
in a philatelic move attempting to encompass one nation's Antarctic activities within another nation's association with the continent, Lars Christensen's Avro Avian featured in an Australian postage stamp issued under the banner of the Australian Antarctic Territory in 1973. This isn't rare, with Commonwealth stamp designers regularly incorporating the triumphs of many other nations' efforts into their philatelic fold, the most tortured immortalisation I'm aware of being a United Kingdom stamp celebrating the flight of the Polar Star, slated to feature in an episode of the series in coming months, wherein an American-financed project saw a Canadian pilot fly an American airframe over the Polar Dome in a project coordinated by an Australian. But Britain because Britain, don't you know? Who's a good nation? Eight flights over the Leopold and Astrid coast in quick succession, followed on the 10th of February, but Christensen felt exasperated at the limitations the avian placed on their explorations. Where previously the crow's nest limited a ship's master's vision, now it was the range and takeoff weight of the aircraft that the ship carried. As the Torshaven circumnavigational voyage finished in Montevideo, Christensen stated that future work would make use of a more capable airframe carrying radio sets. In the closing days of the same season, Hjalmar Risa Larsen sailed aboard the whale catcher Torgoth, which put the aviator ashore with sledges and dogs and Halvard Devold and Olva Kilborn in a planned and very ambitious attempt to follow the coast of the Weddell Sea from Queen Maudland around to Hope Bay. It sounds dumb when I say it out loud, but given Risa Larsen was hard as nails and, being Norwegian, able to survive on an almost indefinite high-protein diet, taking seal-powered dogs on a coastal sledging foray through the Antarctic winter doesn't seem as daft as some other expeditions I've already recounted. The only thing that could stand in their way was what actually happened. The old and firm bay ice in the inlet on the Princess Reinhild coast that the Torgort landed them on broke out, setting the men and their dogs adrift almost immediately after the ship departed. At the very tail end of the whaling season, the men were rescued by the whale-captured Globe 5, but the dogs didn't find berths on board, experiencing the same fate as many of their predecessors deemed surplus to requirements in Antarctica left behind to their cold and likely cannibalistic end. I should mention here that one of the most enjoyable evenings I ever spent, I spent in company with a Norwegian host in the Ostevoll Islands. He worked as a field guide for scientific parties operating in the Arctic, and almost everything he served up that night, he'd had some hand in hunting, killing or butchering. Caribou, elk, cod, monkfish and minke whale came on the table in enormous quantities, and he only lamented that he had run out of polar bear, having killed a large male that began tracking the team he was guiding, only a week earlier than the arrival of his austral guests. I don't eat a lot of meat, and the densely dark marbling of the minke whale would have seen me pass, even if the fish options weren't available, but I did heed the prodigious quantities of meat the Norwegian contingent present at dinner consumed. Since that evening I've visited Inuit communities where vegetarian is synonymous with starvation, but the Norwegians impressed me as the most meat-eating people I'd spent time with to that point, and I left with an impression that Australian pride in consuming a double helping of the mixed grill at the annual Butchers and Small Goods Convention 
constitutes a form of protein hubris. And should money ever go on the table in a meat-off competition against Norwegians, my bet, were I a betting man, which I'm not, would be placed in a manner likely to be deemed un-Australian. In other news, I'm recently returned from five weeks of family matters in the USA, and I owe a tremendous debt of hospitality to Kathy and Kaylee, to Monica and Jeff, to Kat and Jen, to Candy, to Janelle and Jeremy, to Cynthia and Jason, to Damon and Lynn, to Aunt Mary, and to Roger and Penny Hobbs. I gave a presentation on Antarctic marine life at the Shedd Aquarium, which provoked one of those odd moments where you're not entirely sure what's happening is real. Between us, my wife and I have held jobs as educators in five aquaria, but none as large and prestigious as the Shed, and the attendance and enthusiasm of the attendees felt humbling. Many thanks to Monica and to Tim and to Becky for making that happen. Lots of love this episode to my brother-in-law Justin, that Pat's absence saw us in tears doesn't diminish that we forged memories I treasured during my time in Detroit, and I look forward to your correspondence daily and to your company when time and money allow. In anticipation of my son joining me in the south this coming austral summer, I'm recording his impressions of Antarctica for contrast with those he comes away with from his travels. These won't be published as part of the series because the internet is a weird place, but I'm pleased to have the process in train, and he can do with the recordings as he pleases when he's old enough to fully understand the ins and outs of privacy and online presences. He might consent to me publishing them at that point, but that's up to him. The opportunity to contribute to his travel fund is still open to iced coffee listeners, but I'm leaving it up to you to work out how to go about it, because I only want to take your money if you're really, really determined to give it to me. Take care and appreciate your coffee.